0: Welcome to People Places Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the People Places Planet Podcast. My name is Sarah Backer, and I'm your host. Today, I am fortunate to be able to sit down with Dr. Marshall J. Shepard, and have a conversation with him in celebration of his work. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Shepherd is a renowned scientist and weather climate expert who has been awarded ELI's prestigious Environmental Achievement Award. This accolade is presented annually to individuals or organizations that have made notable contributions to environmental protection, conservation, and sustainability. As a professor, science communicator, and a former president of the American Meteorological Society, Dr. Shepard has consistently emphasized the vital importance of scientifically informed decision making in addressing environmental challenges. His commitment to factual and evidence-based dialogue has elevated public discussions on climate, weather extremes, and environmental justice. Dr. Shepard is a highly sought after expert in the fields of weather, climate, and remote sensing, and his insights are regularly featured on prominent platforms such as CBS Face the Nation, The Today Show, CNN, Forbes, and The Weather Channel, among many others. His TED Talks command an audience of millions, and he often provides counsel to legal figures at NASA, the White House, Congress, the Department of Defense, and to international officials. Dr. Shepard, thank you so much for being here with me today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So I wanted to start off by asking you, how did you get your start in weather and atmospheric science and what inspired you?
0: Well, it's a really interesting answer. It starts with a honeybee. I was in fifth grade and I thought that I wanted to be an entomologist, which studies insects, and I got stung by a honeybee and found out I was highly allergic to bee stings and almost died. So sixth grade rolls around and we had science projects and I needed a plan B, and pun intended. And so I decided to do a sixth grade science project on weather. Uh, In fact, it was entitled, Can a Sixth Grader Predict the Weather? And I made weather instruments from things we had around the house and developed a little weather model, if you will, for my community there in Canton, Georgia. And I ended up winning the science fair. And from that point on, I was bitten by the weather bug, so to speak, and wanted to be a meteorologist, not a forecaster, not on TV pointing at weather maps. I was more interested in the hows and whys of weather. And so that's where I got my start. Ended up going to undergraduate and graduate school at Florida State University, who had a really good meteorology program. Got my doctorate and my career took off from there.
1: Well, that's incredible. And I think it really shows how important youth science projects are. So when did climate change become a focus for you and why?
0: Well, again, my background is meteorology, physical meteorology. So I've always been interested in how the atmosphere works and why certain things are happening within it, why certain storms produce tornadoes, why certain hurricanes are stronger than others. But I think the climate shift came during my tenure as a scientist at NASA. I spent 12 years of my career as a scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Many people don't realize this, but NASA has a very robust Earth science mission or Earth science focus that uses its satellites and technology to try to understand the third rock from the sun, planet Earth. That's important because it's our only planet. We don't have a plan B planet. And so we definitely need to understand planet Earth. And we know it's shifting and changing. And so, during my time at NASA, I was working on these missions, the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission and the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, or GPM. I ended up being the deputy project scientist for that mission for a time. And these missions at NASA were looking at planet Earth from an Earth system science perspective. In other words, how are things happening that are changing our hurricanes or changing our rainfall or changing sea level or the cryosphere or the lithosphere, the biosphere. And so at NASA, you're forced to think about how all of our planet systems are working together how healthy are they, and if they're changing. And so, over time, that's how my focus began to, I won't say shift, because I still look at weather processes even to this day, but also begin to take on more of a duality, both weather and climate. And so, in addition to my just research and mission work at NASA, I would often get asked to do media interviews with people like CNN or the Today Show on aspects of climate change, because NASA was really providing some of the most important data and imagery and information on our climate.
1: Well, it's great to hear that even at NASA, and especially at NASA, there is a focus on planet Earth and providing that data on climate. And I listened to your TEDx Atlanta talk from 2013, which I really liked, called Slaying Climate Zombies, and it is one of the most viewed climate lectures on YouTube. So in the talk, you speak to a disconnect between climate scientists and the general public with climate scientists far more concerned about climate change. So fast forward 10 years, would you say this is still the case today?
0: No, a good point. You know, I think things are different today. I think there's a misconception that there's more climate denialism out there today than there actually is. I think it's just that the people that are still somewhat contrarian or skeptical are just the loudest on Twitter or in social media or perhaps at the family dinner. But the reality is, if you look at the Yale Climate Communication 6 America study, which they do every year. We see about 9% of the American public that's dismissive. That's not very much when you think about the rest of the 91% that aren't dismissive, but they just tend to be the loudest. I think people understand that we're no longer future tense with climate change. It's not what's going to happen. It's happening right before our eyes. And I think people see that. So you have to understand that most people do have some degree of concern or at least curiosity about what's happening. and I think nature is also a big part of that because they see that hurricanes are intensifying more rapidly or heat waves seem to be much stronger, or that rain intensity is much greater where they are. They can see sunny day flooding along coast associated with sea level rise. So I think the the planet is making the case for us, and so we better get moving.
1: Given that only 9% are found to be dismissive of climate change, do you think that having factual and evidence-based public discussion on climate, weather extremes, and environmental justice has gotten easier?
0: You know, it's interesting. I think it has gotten easier because, again, I think for many people, the data or scientific jargon is not going to make the case for them. In fact, there are actually some studies that suggest that with some people, the more data you give them, the more contrarian they become. They dig in even more in their position. I have another TED talk out there. It's about what shapes people's biases and perceptions of science. It's a TEDx UGA talk. And I talk about how people are shaped by things like confirmation bias. They consume information from things they already believe or other types of cognitive biases or Dunning-Kruger effect where people misjudge how much they know about things and underestimate what they don't know about them. And so, these things do shape perspectives on what people believe about science. But I do think that it's not so much the data and the charts and the graphics and the report after report after report that keeps getting issued by various organizations. I think people just understand that something's different now. They see it with their own eyes. You know, I've even written in the past. I'm a senior contributor to Forbes magazine uh, about what I call report fatigue. There are a lot of reports that come out saying that basically the same things we've been saying for the last several years to decades, that climate is changing, extremes are starting to be impacted by those changes, and it affects everything from agricultural productivity to energy production, national security, public health, transportation, and more. I mean, we don't need more reports that say that. Now, we'll get more reports that will say that. The bottom line is those reports are going to continue to say that, but I think people get when they see you know, 800 people dying in Europe or wherever because of the intense heat wave and places not having air conditioning because they weren't designed to have air conditioning in the homes because they didn't expect to have that type of heat. Or I think when people wake up to a Cat 4 and they went to bed to a Cat 1 hurricane, I think people have a good internal guide or navigation system that suggests, wait a minute, something's different and it's starting to impact my day-to-day lives. If I can't work outside, if I'm a construction worker because it's too hot in the summer, that affects my bottom line, my kitchen table issues at home. So we finally, I believe, Sarah, move this beyond sort of about being polar bears affected or the year 2080. It's about us right now.
1: Yes. And I think it might be the slaying climate zombies talk where I heard you say that although you really like polar bears, you're speaking about climate because of your children and how climate is affecting people. So, you say that we don't need any more reports on climate. What exactly do you mean by that?
0: Those things are meaningful to me as a scientist or Mm -hmm. to policymakers. But the average person or the average Fortune 500 company or faith based organization, they need sort of more detailed, concrete examples of what's happening and what the solutions are to move us forward because we know it's now happening.
1: Definitely. Are there any resources that you have pointed different communities to to help them take action or advocate for solutions?
0: Sure. So first of all, there are three things that we know need to be done. One is mitigation. That's reducing emissions. That's the broad category of mitigation. And so I've been involved in something here in the state of Georgia called Drawdown Georgia. And it built upon a much larger national effort called Project Drawdown, which looks at ways to reduce carbon emissions. And what we did in the state of Georgia, and you can visit our website, Drawdown Georgia, we actually did scientific studies, practical studies on what would be the top 20 ways to reduce carbon emissions in the state of Georgia. Those might be different in the state you live in. But I would invite people to take a look at both Project Drawdown and Drawdown Georgia websites because they give really good practical solutions in all scales for reducing carbon emissions. The other thing that people can do is just be more engaged. As I think I said in that same Zombies TED Talk, we can do things like change our light bulbs or drive an EV or things on a personal level, eat less meat, red meat. But those are incremental solutions. These things to solve the climate change crisis are going to take transformational and large policy solutions. And so we need people to engage at the state, local, national, international level, uh, make sure that they're holding decision makers and policymakers accountable on all sides of the aisle on climate change. So those are the sort of mitigation strategies. And then we know that we're going to have to adapt. There are certain things that we're just going to have to change how we operate. I mentioned earlier that places that did not have air conditioning in most homes because they weren't used to that type of heat may have to be retrofitted with air conditioning. We may have to start looking at seawalls or nature-based solutions to uh, fortify our coast against storm surge and sea level rise and hurricanes and so forth. So those are what we call adaptation strategies. And then the sort of Hail Mary or last-ditch effort, if you will, people are looking at or thinking about is something called geoengineering or climate intervention. These are ideas that where we fundamentally change something about the planet to dramatically and rapidly reduce heating. Things like space mirrors launched into orbit or simulating volcanic eruptions or stimulating the growth of vegetation or phytoplankton in in the oceans to soak up carbon dioxide. I don't think we need to go to those solutions. We know the technology and we know what needs to be done. We just have to have the will to do it. We're in what I call a climate delayism phase right now. We know that climate is changing and it's impacting our quality of life. But there is a hemming and hawing or debating back and forth about costs now. You People don't really debate whether it's happening anymore, but now the debate has shifted into, well, how much is it going to cost to put in EV chargers every 50 miles on the interstate, sort of retrofit homes with solar panels? We've got to sort of just take action. But the good news, Sarah, is I think we are. There have been bipartisan legislation recently, the infrastructure bills and the Inflation Reduction Act. If you look at those bills that were passed, there is a ton of action in those bills that helped with climate change, and they were bipartisan for the most part.
1: I'm really happy that you mentioned Project Drawdown because I think that is such a great resource. And you touched on this, but can you provide any further insight for policymakers and key decision makers like judges on how they can combat the climate delayism?
0: I think decision makers on both sides of the aisle understand that their constituencies and the places that they're responsible for representing are changing. They're being impacted by storms or drought or flash floods or sunny day flooding and saltwater intrusion in coastal communities and so forth. And so I think we have to sort of just keep pressing upon our decision makers and we know what needs to be done. It's not a mystery. We know how to get out of this. Just like with COVID, we knew how to get out of COVID. We needed to rapidly develop a vaccine to counter the coronavirus. And we did it. We put our heads together in a science, technology, medical community, and we did it. The policymakers as well. We need that same type of immediate action on climate change. I've been quoted as saying we need Panama Canal, a moonshot, Manhattan Project scale focus on climate change. In other words, directing all of our best talents and resources towards this problem. And we need it immediately. We can't keep hemming and hawing because as we saw with coronavirus, the more we delayed, the exponential increase in cases kicked in. Well, we're still at a point where many of us don't believe we're past any climate tipping points, maybe some. But we still have time, but we're going to start to see a ramp up or an increase in the warming and the impacts of this warming if we don't start to knock it back now. So that's why things like the Paris Agreement are good steps forward, but we need buy in from everyone. We need an all in approach on that and so that we can really start to draw down those carbon emissions, even if we stopped emissions today, which would not happen, by the way. There's still so much warmth and and emissions locked and loaded into the climate system that we'd still be dealing with this for years to perhaps decades. And unfortunately, there's no sort of immediate switch to shut those emissions off. In fact, we'll be a fossil fuel based economy for some time to come for the next several years. But we need to transition to a more renewable energy economy. And that's not scary. Some people are like, that's going to hurt jobs and hurt people. The renewable energy that will come is a, a growth industry. There are significant job growth in those areas. I think you're starting to see it already. So we can't be scared of transitioning to a more sustainable economy.
1: Speaking of buy-in from everyone, do you have any insights for other scientists who may be listening to this for how they can most effectively translate their findings to better reach the general public? and policymakers?
0: Well, first of all, scientists need to stop being scared to get out of the ivory tower. You'll hear a lot of my colleagues in the ivory tower, well, I don't know that outreach stuff or I I don't like to talk to the media or the policymakers. We've got to get beyond that. Uh, We're in a world of what I call end-to-end scientists. And in fact, we need to, and I'm trying to do it with my own graduate students. We have to train graduate students and scientists differently. Uh, In the past, we just learned how to do our dissertations and theses and 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 take classes and go to conferences and write journal articles. And those are things that are very important. But we also need to train a generation of scientists that are comfortable talking to the media or, or testifying before Congress or writing a blog or doing podcasts. We need to focus there. Also, scientists need to sort of be aware of jargon that they're using the way that we talk in the ivory tower does not resonate with most people in the public or even most policymakers. Try to keep information very miniature, meaningful, and memorable. Those are the three M's that I always talk about. And also remember that the way we were trained to convey information as scientists is actually backwards. We usually start as scientists with all this information and methodology and things that we did to arrive at our results. And 300 pages later, you tell people what you found. Well, the way you need to communicate with the public and policymakers, you need to tell them right up front what you found, the bottom line right up front. And that's one of the things that I've tried to teach my students. Also, use analogies, use things that people understand. One of the things that people often hear me say is, weather is your mood and climate is your personality. And I say that because every winter, people will tweet me and say, hey, it's 25 degrees outside. It's cold. What do you guys mean there's global warming happening? Well, that's a fundamental statement that illustrates that person doesn't understand the difference between weather and climate. And so I like to say weather is your mood, climate is your personality. Your mood today doesn't necessarily tell me anything about your personality. I'll give you another one. Weather is what clothing you have on today. Climate is what all the clothes you have in your closet. Because in your closet, you may have a raincoat, you may have a heavy coat, you may have a swimsuit for the summer. You have clothing for all ranges of possibilities of weather realizations, whereas what you have on today represents what the weather was today. So we have to really think carefully about how we communicate. And I have an article I wrote in Forbes several years ago called Nine Tips for Communicating Science for Non-Scientists. It has some really good tips that I just talked through some of.
1: Well, I really appreciate that you are miles from the ivory tower and that you're encouraging your colleagues and your students to also do the same. And your podcast, Weather Geeks, is helping to bridge the gap between scientists and non-scientists from what I see. What inspired you to start it and which episodes are you most proud of?
0: Well, you know... Weather Geeks is not simply my podcast. It's a podcast started by the Weather Channel. We used to do the show as a Sunday talk show on the Weather Channel where we would bring on guests to talk about weather, climate and other science issues of the day. But then a couple of years ago, we just recognized that we wanted to reach a much broader audience. And so we started doing it as a podcast as well. And so I think we have well over 250 podcast episodes out there right now. And then we have some older television show episodes as well. If people can find them, I think some of them are out there on YouTube. We're also streaming the podcast live on the Weather Channel streaming channel, which you can find on your various smart TVs and other services as well. And so it's just a way for us to talk science and talk about it in a way that's accessible to people who are listening or watching the podcast. I think Weather Geeks now is going on nine years old, maybe even longer between the TV show and the podcast itself.
1: Well, thanks for providing more background on that. I listened to a few episodes, but it's great to hear some more context about it. How else are you advancing climate literacy for all ages? I'm a former elementary school teacher, and I would love it if you could speak to your initiative for kindergarten through fifth grade.
0: I don't do too much with kindergartners to fifth graders anymore. I used to work with a school that my kids went to when they were in that age range. But I definitely recommend that people focus on things like the weather STEM initiative, which is a colleague of mine's effort to put weather observations in schools around the nation. And it also provides lessons for students to learn about the atmosphere and weather and aspects of climate. My schedule doesn't allow me to do it much anymore, but I used to try to Zoom in or visit as many classrooms as possible to talk about some of these issues. I know in the K through five curriculum standards, there are topics on weather and water cycle. So it's important that we engage in those areas where we can and provide useful resources for teachers and students alike.
1: Well, thank you for your answer. So, switching gears from the classroom angle, your research has helped to cast new light on climate justice issues by describing the effects of urban heat islands and climate change on increased flooding in disadvantaged communities. Can you speak more to how you approach environmental justice in your work?
0: I think what we do is a little broader than environmental justice. Environmental justice, to me, tends to focus on things like landfills and factories and communities. I think climate justice is a little different. It's related. And it's this idea that certain aspects of weather and climate disproportionately impact certain communities. And so some of our own research has shown that in cities, marginalized communities, communities of color, poor parts of our communities tend to live in the hottest parts of the urban heat island. The urban heat island is this notion that cities tend to be warmer than the surrounding rural or suburban counties because of the pavement, asphalt, lack of trees, waste heat from bus engines and so forth. We also know that in cities or communities, communities of color tend to disproportionately live in areas that are prone to flooding. And so it's interesting as we're seeing more intense rainstorms or more intense heat waves. Now, people that were already suffering or had less resources are more vulnerable to these extreme events, but have less capacity or resiliency to bounce back. So some of my research over the last several years has evolved to look at this vulnerability at risk from the perspective of not just the extreme weather climate events themselves, but who's most impacted or exposed to them.
1: Has there been a greater focus on climate justice in your research over the past few years?
0: Well, sure. You know, as researchers, we tend to take different things that become of interest to us. And I had a couple of graduate students and I that just really wanted to think about how people are being impacted by extreme weather and climate. Wanted to move beyond the, okay, this is what's happening and this is how bad it is. I mean, we certainly have research that looks at those things too, to the so what, who's being impacted and why. And so, you know, I look at the community that I grew up in and I look at my family and my background You know, they're exactly the types of people that would be more vulnerable to a hurricane or to a tornadic storm coming through their community or a heat wave. And so a recent paper that we published in 2020, we looked at what counties in the United States will be most vulnerable to climate change by the year 2040. And we found that many urban counties, counties along coastal parts of our states and parts of the desert southwest, Even some agricultural communities in the interior are going to be disproportionately vulnerable to changes in heat or drought or floods and so forth. And all of these things impact these people, but they also start to do things like impact agricultural productivity, public health and things downstream that maybe you don't think about. I don't think people think about that when there's a drought in California, for example. California produces quite a bit of the vegetables that we eat and fruit. And so when there's drought there and lack of supply, when you go to the grocery store, no matter where you live, you may be paying more for things like broccoli or wine or fruit loops and so forth. And so it's important that we just try to translate the implications of these things more broadly and to make people aware of the fact that out of the gate, some people in communities are going to be disproportionately impacted more by these changing weather events and have less capacity to bounce back from them after the fact.
1: This may be cynical, but I just think that, as you said, everyone is connected, everything is connected, and hopefully as everyone starts to feel implicated and impacted, that will help to raise the alarm bells and combat climate delayism.
0: Yes, I think that's right. A salute to the Environmental Law Institute and organizations like it. I've been honored to receive their uh, environmental award this year. We need a focus at all levels of institution, whether it's government, private sector, faith-based organizations, the military, schools. This is something that we're not going to dig out of independently. We have to have an all-hands-on-deck approach.
1: Before we close out, I want to just end with any insight that you may have for people who are listening to this podcast about how they can contribute to having an all hands on deck approach, as you said, and holding their government leaders accountable to do what we need to do to combat climate change.
0: Again, just take a look at some of the things that Project Drawdown and Drawdown Georgia and others are putting out there in terms of things you can do. You can do things around the house. You know, watching your energy use and putting in solar panels or composting your food waste or starting a vegetable garden. These are all important things to do, and we all should do them. I try to do them. Uh, Flying less and so forth. I don't fly very much anymore. They're all important individual actions, and people always ask me. But the most important thing you can do is become a climate voter. Vote with a lens of climate. And I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent or Libertarian. It doesn't really matter what you identify as We all are impacted by climate and extreme weather events. So be a climate cognizant voter. That's the biggest advice that I can give and be vocal about it. Be proactive about letting people know the importance of climate change and how it's impacting their day-to-day lives. Don't talk about it from these 50-foot levels or about polar bears in the year 2080. Learn as much as you can and, and talk about it from a here and now perspective.
1: Definitely. And I think you did a wonderful job trying to contextualize the individual action piece as well as the collective action piece and i think it's a great note to leave our listeners with the message to go out and be a vocal well-informed, climate cognizant voter well thank you so much for being here with me today and we're so happy to be able to honor you with our annual award
0: i'm really honored to be the recipient of the 2023 environmental law institute uh, award And I'll be sure to carry forth the ideals and goals of the organization as I continue to do my work as a scholar, as an educator, and a citizen of the planet that's impacted. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.